My name is Randall. I'm one of the leaders here at Hub City. And this morning, obviously, I mean, if you haven't caught it yet, I don't know what to tell you. We are right in the middle of the Gospel of Mark. And so we're continuing that series. And we find ourselves in chapter two today, as Matt just read. And um, here's the thing. As we've walked through the first few chapters, I want you to notice, because I think, I think Mark is intentional in this. He, he sets this tone of immediacy. Now, I, we've mentioned this before. But, but Mark is really purposeful in this. I don't know that it's as reflective of like his nature or character, but like even to where we're at right now, like in the middle of chapter two, he has used the word immediately 10 times already. And then there's some other like nuanced language in there that, that really gets across the tone that Mark wants to move things along like really fast paced. Now, I don't think that's because he's like hyperactive and twitchy. We have to keep in mind that his audience, like who this gospel or this letter is meant to go to is primarily people, Jesus followers in Rome who were suffering under the beginning of Nero's like fierce persecution of the church. We walked through that back in kind of the intro. And so think about it, like you're huddled together, fearing for your life and your safety and, and you want to be encouraged. Like, you don't want to read, like, stuff that you don't need to read. Like, you just go, like, give me the talking points because I don't know how swiftly or quickly, like, I'm going to be fed to a lion, right? So, so, so that's kind of Mark's point is, like, he expedites his writing process because he knows that his audience needs to hear this information and they need to hear it quickly. So, He's moving quickly, and he moves us through some significant and key events, events that the other gospel writers take way more time with. He omits events that other gospel writers write about, and, he, and they give more attention to that detail. So, 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 so far, we're two and a half chapters in, and here's what we see, right? You can see the fast pace of this. Like Jesus arrives, he's baptized, he's inaugurated as king and messiah, he's expelled to the wilderness to be tempted, he begins his public ministry, he calls his first disciples, he casts out demons, he heals Simon's mother-in-law, probably not upon Simon's request because it's his mother-in-law, he heals a person with leprosy, he's healed a man who's been paralyzed, all of that was a Monday for Jesus, right? I'm sorry about the dig on mother-in-laws, I don't even know why I threw that in, that was inappropriate, but... So, this morning's passage, right? So, so I'm going to go fast too, like Margo's fast. So, so you, need to, you need to come along with me, okay? So if you're a little sleepy this morning, like you need to wake up. If you need to do some stretches, I don't know. But let's just get going. This morning's passage, and then next week, here's what we're going to see. It's comprised of this cycle of disputes that Jesus has with the religious leaders. And at the heart of each one of these confrontations is an issue that's centered around like Jewish religious practices and rituals. And then in each case, Jesus' detractors, they ask him a question in which Jesus provides like a real Jesus-y answer. Okay, and we'll see how that goes down today. So we're going to look at the first two this morning, which are this, okay? Why does Jesus eat with tax collectors and sinners? And then why does everyone else and their disciples fast, but Jesus and his do not? Sound good? you guys can hang with this. Let me pray one more time, and then we're going to jump in. Father, we, we do want to come before you now um, with a sense of humility 
and a sense of dependency. We, we recognize that what is required here more than anything is not the talent that we bring to the table. It's not the work that we put in, although you ask us to do that. You give us those abilities. What is most required now is your presence with your people. And, and I pray that our hearts would be tuned in to what you want to accomplish in us today, that, that our hearts would line up with your agenda for us, and not just as individuals, but for us communally, as a community. God, what would you have for us through your word? And I pray that we would submit to it and that we would live lives of obedience to it. In your name we pray. Amen. So this passage marks, again, like a shift in tone for Jesus and his disciples in Mark's gospel. So far, Jesus really has been met with like no resistance. He's gathered a decent following. He taught in the synagogue and people were astonished, right? He's healed people. He's cast out demons and people were amazed. His fame and his status are on the rise and he's even gaining clout in Jerusalem. Remember, he's, he's in Galilee region right now. So however, we're meant to see this as quickly as Jesus's popularity rose so did his notoriety, especially from those in power. So let's just dig in and see if we can discover why. Verse 13, he went out again beside the sea. So he had been in Capernaum, which is a a major port in the area of Galilee, a, a fishing port, but he leaves the city and then goes back out to the sea. And all the crowd was coming to him and was teaching him. Why? Because because here's, here's why Jesus' motivation to, to go back out to the sea. He realizes that the crowds that he had gathered in Capernaum were, were simply, like they just wanted to be Jesus adjacent, right? They just wanted to be near Jesus so that they could either benefit personally from a miracle or they hoped to at least like witness one of these things. So, so word had spread and they're like, there's this guy that's doing like, crazy thing. He's casting out demons. He's, he's touching lepers and healing them. So the people really just wanted a magic show, right? But Jesus's mission was to teach and preach the good news of the kingdom of God. So he, he goes for a stroll by the sea. And for whatever reason, the people there are, are much more receptive. They're much more willing to listen and be taught. And so once again, he gathers a large crowd, which we should pay attention to, Everywhere that Jesus goes up until a certain point, he gathers a crowd, right? And this is really important. Mark really wants us to see this, that Jesus wants to be with the people, right? He he wasn't sequestered away in the temple, just like studying and writing theology. He wasn't stuck behind a desk running a big church organization. He doesn't gather a few followers and then build a commune so he and his disciples could practice their religion in private. He doesn't buy a private jet so he wouldn't have to fly with the regular people. He was with the very people that he came to save. He's with those who needed to be healed, who needed to be touched, who needed to be taught, who needed to hear the gospel. And so there's a real simple principle that Jesus is teaching his disciples, which includes us in this room that have committed to following Jesus. Because remember, he's equipping them for mission. What does Jesus say when he calls his first disciples in Mark's gospel, right? He calls some fishermen and he says, here's, or he's, the, he's like, here's the deal. You're fishing for fish, 
but I'm going to teach you to become fisher of men. So, so really, that sets the tone for Mark's gospel. Everything that Jesus does, we're supposed to see through the lens that, that Jesus is teaching his followers to become fisher of, fishers of men, right? He's equipping them for mission. So I'm going to go out on a limb here and say, we should probably pay attention to this, right? If we're disciples of Jesus, Jesus is also teaching us to become fishers of men, or he's going to make us to become fishers of men, right? So there's this simple principle here for Jesus, right? And, it, and it's this. It's not groundbreaking. It's not hard to understand. Some reason it's really hard for us to live out, which is this, this. To reach the lost, are you ready? Are you sitting down? You have to be with the lost, right? To actually reach them, Right? To, actually, to actually proclaim the gospel to them, to live out the gospel, to display the kingdom, you have to be with them. Right? Uh, I love this Haddon Robinson, like, theologian, preacher. He, he, he has these three questions that he asks about a disciple's inner spiritual life. Right? Because here's the deal. I, I think this. I think when it comes to what we most commonly call evangelism, we have historically in the modern church always treated it like a program problem, right? Like it's a problem of like, if we can just figure out the right program, we could be attractional enough. We could do all the great, we could do the magic show and people would come to us. Like, trust me, having been a youth pastor for, I don't know, 20 years, like I understand that kind of mentality, right? And, and so we've always treated it as a program problem. The reality, it's a discipleship issue. It's a sign of maturity. And Haddon Robinson asks these three questions about our inner spiritual life. One, do you love God? Simple question, sounds familiar. That probably would get to the heart of our discipleship, right? Number two, do you love your neighbor? Jesus said some stuff about that. We should all be okay with these questions, right? Number three, do you mind if I ask them? That's the cutting part, right? That's the part where we go, oh, like I don't know that I've ever talked to them. I don't know that I've ever been with them. I don't know that I've ever shared a meal with them or a drink with them or whatever. You see, at the heart of, at the heart of this issue is a, is a discipleship issue for us. And, and we need to live out Jesus' very simple principle here, which is we don't cloister away, we don't sequester away. We're in the world, we're not of it, but we engage our neighbors, we engage our coworkers, we engage those who are living apart from Jesus. Why? Well, it could be just as simple as because if we're Jesus followers, well, that's what he did. That's what it means to follow him. So what does Jesus actually do with the loss. What does Jesus actually do with those that are living apart from a relationship with God? Well, he proclaims the good news and he demonstrates the kingdom. Let me show you this, verse 14. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. Listen, I believe we have to see these events as very intentional on Jesus's part, right? Like he takes a stroll by the sea. 
And maybe he even walks by the place that he called the other disciples, right? And so, so they're following Jesus now. They're witnessing what Jesus is doing, and they walk by the place, potentially, like Mark doesn't tell this, but you have to imagine that they probably walked by the place where they dropped their nets, right, and decided to follow Jesus. And the first thing that Jesus says to them is, once again, hey, you're out here fishing for fish, I'm going to teach you how to fish for people with the gospel. And now he's demonstrating this to them right in front of you, showing them here's what this looks like. So does he just stumble across this guy, Levi? Maybe, but it's Jesus. And I think we have to see this as a divine appointment for Levi. Imagine if you're Levi, like you're just sitting there minding your own business in the midday heat, and you have no idea that in a very few minutes, your whole life, everything about you is going to change forever. And I love that Mark's language here is very Jesus-centered. We need to pay attention to what Mark does, because look at what he says. He, speaking of Jesus, he passes by, he saw, he said. Mark wants us to see that, that Jesus initiates this encounter. He's pursuing Levi. And Levi responds, of course, he rose, and he simply responds by following him. Well, who's Levi, right? We, we should pay attention to who this person is. Like, what do we know about him? Well, we know his dad's name, Alphaeus, right? So clearly his dad was probably a jazz musician, which, I mean, that sounds like a jazz musician name. He's sitting at a tax booth, so we could infer maybe the guy's working his job, right? So he's a tax collector, and that's really it. So what we know from extra sources or commentaries and even other gospels is that most scholars agree that this is most certainly Matthew. So Mark is going to go on and refer to Levi as Matthew in chapter 3 when he gives like an inventory of the apostles. So this guy Levi turns out to be an apostle, a gospel writer, which is crazy and amazing, but for right now he's just a tax collector, right? Which you've probably heard sermons like this, so we're cluing in. If you haven't, what does that mean, right? He's just a tax collector. He's just working his job. Well, it means this. It means that he was probably one of the most despised and despicable people in all of Israel. Why? Right? Well, the Jewish people were subjected to occupation by Rome. And that meant that they were under this like oppressive tax system to kind of feed and grow the Roman Empire. And tax collectors who were all Jewish right? So everywhere that the Roman Empire would occupy another country, they would call people from that country to become tax collectors, right? So here's how this worked. If you wanted to become a tax collector, which I don't know why you would, it was the most despised occupation of the day. Um, I can't, I don't, I mean, we don't even have something similar to that. Maybe like the, if you know, like the meter guy, which I don't despise. Let me just say, I don't despise him at all. Like, don't hear me say, none of you say that I despise him. I'm just saying like, uh, I love the fact that he it looks like a robot riding around on his thing, but like maybe that because he's going to give us a, I don't know. Like there's just nothing that's quite as equivalent to how people would have felt about this, right? And here's how this worked. You, if you wanted to be this, you would place bids 
for like the available jobs by submitting estimates of how much tax revenue you think you could collect, right? And if Rome liked that person's bid, then they would win or they would be selected to be a tax collector and then given a quota to meet. So they would strategically place themselves at intersections of trade routes or borders to collect tolls or taxes. So once the tax collector then met that quota that Rome gave them, everything else that he collected was his. So they kind of worked on commission and competition was fierce because the position could be lucrative. So, but here's what they would do, right? They would, they would inflate the tax rate so that they could get that commission, right? And so, so they were just despised by their fellow countrymen, right? They were labeled as traitors and abusers by their own people. And the job itself came with heavy social costs, right? Tax collectors, again, were regarded as traitors. They abandoned, essentially, their identity as Jewish people. Their social status um, was diminished. Their membership in the synagogue, um, they, they, couldn't, they, they were seen as unclean. They were disgraced and kicked out of their communities and their families. And so to become a tax collector, here's the thing. You're going to get really wealthy, and you're going to be really lonely because nobody likes you besides other tax collectors. So furthermore, like anyone, right, if you're like, hey, my friend is a tax collector, like I hang out with this person, you would have been just as much of a social pariah. You would have been seen as unclean and, and you would have been kicked out. So, so nobody was friends with them, right? So you can see the tension here in the story. Tax collectors were hardly ideal candidates to be one of Jesus's friends certainly not a disciple. Like, how could you call one of the most despised, despicable people in all of the country? And yet Jesus, knowing all of this, he calls Levi to follow him. And, and, and remarkably, he does. And so we need to see this. I want to I take a second to kind of process Jesus's call, right? I think we need to see this. It, it wasn't transactional in this moment, right? Jesus didn't incentivize or commoditize the call. He, he didn't promise Levi that he would elevate his status culturally. He didn't, he didn't promise him like a more prosperous or safe life. Jesus' call on our lives is never transactional. It's invitational and relational. He invites us to come and talk and walk with him. And I think there's something really important Jesus does here, and I want you to see this, right? Long before Jesus asks Levi to behave in a certain way. Even before he calls him to, to, to believe the right things, he simply asks him to follow him, which means like literally get up and follow me. Wherever I go, you should be behind me. You should be following me. And I, and I think we get it backwards, right? We expect people to act a certain way, to modify their behavior, or we simply call them to believe something. But Jesus always starts with follow. It's a simple invitation. Follow me. And in following, what Jesus knows is that people will eventually come to believe. And in believing, of course, they will begin to behave or obey in a certain way because that's the call of the gospel. And so Levi apparently counted the cost in that moment. He assessed the risk, and he stands up, and he, and he follows 
Jesus, right? This is really like a radical decision because he abandons a very lucrative career, right? Very lonely, but very lucrative career. And whatever possessions and lifestyle that that career afforded him, there was no going or getting it back. Once he left, unlike the other disciples, they could always become fishermen again. They could return to the family business. But once Levi left that post, we're almost meant to see like there's somebody waiting in the shadows, ready to take that. And so it's over for him, right? So he, he turns his back on his former way of life and he embraces a very uncertain and unknown future. And the question is, why? Why would Levi abandon everything to follow Jesus? But maybe even more important, why would Jesus invite such a deplorable reprobate like Levi? Because it's, it was shocking. It was completely unthinkable that someone of Jesus' stature culturally would associate with someone of Levi's. Jesus, what we know, sees in Levi not merely a social pariah who deserves to be ridiculed and shamed, yes, a rebellious sinner, but one who is in need of a savior. Jesus doesn't look at Levi and see a traitorous extortionist, but a transformed life as a disciple, an evangelist, an apostle, and a writer of a gospel. And really, that's what we see here in this story. This section is most commonly labeled the scandal of grace, right? And, and because, because we see it taking place here, right? We see Levi, A, receiving mercy in, in not truly getting what he deserves as a traitor, as an extortionist, as a rebel, right? And then furthermore, in grace, we see him getting something that he completely doesn't deserve, which is this opportunity for a new life of following Jesus. So Jesus in us, right, and he sees in us what no one else can or what no one else does. And, and through that grace, he saves us and transforms us in what, into what he created us to be. He restores us as, him, as, as his image bearers, and he then restores us to worship him to glorify him and to image his glory and character so then next mark like swiftly moves from from this little encounter to this to this next scene and it's all connected and we'll see how this is all connected right so verse 15 and as he reclined at the table in his house many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. So Mark doesn't give us this, but apparently Levi extends an invitation, right? He's following Jesus, but then he's like, hey, Jesus, follow me back to my house. We're going to throw a party, and I'm going to fill the house with a bunch of people. For, for there were many who followed him. So we need to kind of pause and, and ask this and kind of look at this. If the optics on this very public and controversial encounter by the sea between Jesus and Levi, like if that wasn't bad enough, right? We, we now move to this very intimate setting of a dinner party, of eating together, which was significant in that culture, right? So, so Jesus finds himself the honored guest at a party of society's most notorious outcasts. Not, not only did Levi invite all of his tax-collecting friends, which, which reserved the category for themselves, right? There's tax collectors. He also opened his door to, to sinners. Now, now, sinners would be this broad term that would generally mean 
people who refuse to obey or live out the law of God in their lives. And, and so we need to see this scene like Jesus, who had been gaining status and favor amongst other religions. They're like, okay, here's this new guy on the scene. He's got some great things to say. He's doing some really amazing things. He's clearly from God. And then they just pivot real quick to go like, oh, wait a minute. He's hanging out with these people. Maybe he's not from God, right? And so, so Matthew or Mark moves us through this very quickly to this dinner, this dinner party, right? Because because not only did Levi invite like all of these these people that 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 nobody else wanted to be associated with, he also invites Jesus to come here and his disciples, right? And 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 one thing that kind of gets lost in the language that we don't I mean it's there, but they're not like sitting in chairs like at a dinner table, right? That's not how that would have happened. That's not how a meal would be shared, right? More than likely, they're sitting probably on some type of pillow. They're sitting on the ground. And instead of chair, like a, the back of a chair to lean into, they, they were actually, when it says that they were reclining, we're, we're meant to understand that they were actually reclining into each other. Like they're holding each other up, right? So there's other scenes that we hear, like the disciples leaning into or reclining into Jesus. And so so everybody would have been touching. Now, now listen, like, we don't do that, right? We're, we're, and some of us are just not comfortable with touching at all, and I, and I understand that, but, but this, is a big, this is a big deal here, right? Because Jesus was not just now in an unclean house. Matt, or Mark, or Levi, as a tax collector, um, would have been seen as unclean, but then everything that he owned or touched or whatever would have also been unclean. He, he wasn't only eating with unclean people, Jesus, once again, just like the leper, is now touching unclean people, right? Which meant for Jesus and his disciples, they would have been kicked out of, they would have had to, to, to gone through this process of, of atonement and becoming clean again, right? So we need to see this. Jesus does more than just call sinners to repentance. Like he doesn't just stand up and say, repent and then peace out. He befriends them. Like he doesn't treat these people like a project that if the project fails, then he just moves on. He has intimate moments of life with them. Like this is crazy. People who were least like Jesus liked Jesus and were liked by Jesus. Does that make sense? You hear that again? People who were least like Jesus actually liked Jesus, but maybe even more remarkably were liked by Jesus. Jesus, which of course elicits a response from the religious leaders of the day because they're watching this unfold and they're like, whoa, this thing just took a hard turn to something that we can't get on board with. Like this is simply unheard of because look at their response, verse 16. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? So we need to get this scene, right? And other gospel writers walk, talk, walk us through this. Jesus is in the house, but some of his disciples didn't go in. Maybe there wasn't room, or maybe they're like, I'm not, I'm not comfortable there. Little did they realize that, that they are also the unclean that Jesus has already called, right? But, but some of them are outside, and so the scribes of the Pharisees come up, and they're like, hey, what's going on in this house, and why is Jesus eating with people that he should not be eating with, right? So to, to, to understand the reaction of the Pharisees, right? And not, like, it's just so easy to typecast 
the Pharisees as like the antagonists in the story. Um, we have to do a little work in understanding like who they were in Israel's history. So, so during the first century, there's really like, like Josephus, the historian talks about this, he calls them philosophies, but there's really like four different parties represented that kind of influenced Jewish religious thought and culture, right? And, and they kind of like represented the diversity of that. Um, there were the Sadducees. These are all fascinating to kind of dig into and, and, and study. The Essenes, the Zealots, and then there's the Pharisees, right? So, so who were the Pharisees? So the word itself is derived from a Hebrew word that means separated ones, right? So you can always like already see a distinction. They're saying we're going to separate ourselves from anyone or anything that's unclean and then we have another like, person that's clearly a religious leader in the person of Jesus who's doing the opposite of what they believe, the opposite of what their very title means, right? So, so they were pious, they, they strictly adhered to the Mosaic law, and they were the folks, right, that, that really Moses needed at the base of the mountain when he was getting the law. Of, like, no golden calves for the Pharisees, right? They strictly adhered to the Mosaic law. They, they vehemently opposed any external influence in Israel, and so they were faithful to the Torah. And so, so what, what that means is ritual purity and cleanliness was of high-level importance to them. So before they ate, they would wash their hands and utensils like they were prepping for surgery, right? Uh, the, they had, they had, the, like their food had to be grown in a certain way. It had to be tithed in a certain way. It had to be pre- pre- prepared in a particular way. And since all of this was so important to them, the last thing that you would find any of them doing, right, any of them would, would to be seen with an unclean person or anything else that was meant to be unclean. And, and they certainly would never consider for a minute entering the house of somebody like Levi. The, the end goal of all this is that they would, this, their, their purpose in, in this is that if they could, if they themselves and then they could have influence over all of Israel, that they could manage like a level of national and religious purity that would result in God initiating the sending of his Messiah, right? So they believed that if, if they could somehow keep everything as pure as possible, God would go, oh, that's right. Look at them. They're in a condition. They're in a space. They've, they've kind of earned now the favor of me to send my Messiah to save them. So it's easy for us to like kind of throw them under the bus and label them as the bad guys. They're hypocrites. They're legalistic. But in Jesus's day, the Pharisees were actually held in high esteem. Their piety and their devotion to the law was highly admired by the people. And they believed that, that what they were doing was going to trigger God to send salvation. So it's important to realize that any criticism that Jesus levels against the Pharisees, right? Because again, it's so easy for us to throw them under the bus. They're the bad guys. But any criticism that Jesus levels against the Pharisees was not because of their commitment to purity and obedience. Like Jesus would never call them out on that. Their motivations, yes. It was because they would say one thing and then turn around and do another thing, right? So more often than not, their personal life didn't match up with their public life. They become obsessed with these external optics but neglected things like justice and mercy and faith, and Jesus would call them out because they believed that they could earn or merit God's favor or salvation. So, so here's the problem. 
they're separated out, right? Their very name means that we're separated out, we're distinct, we're different than. But Jesus refused to live his life separated from the people, like like a monk in a monastery, right? He was where people were. Why? Because he cared about people, because he came for the people. But the Pharisees could not tolerate it, right? So, so who is this guy? They're asking this question, like, who is this guy that, that eats with tax collectors and sinners? Like, and, and they're looking at this like, no, you, like as a religious leader, Jesus, you just put us behind the curve now, right? Like God certainly is going to see your unclean actions and not initiate sending the Savior. So there's some irony at play here too, right? So, so they came to Jesus and, and his disciples, and they're like, yeah, what does Jesus do? Why is, why is this guy in this house? And you have to see, I love this, right? So everyone else is outside of Levi's house arguing about what God would do in a situation like this while God is inside Levi's house eating with the people he came to save, right? And that can't get, like, we cannot miss that. Like, and it's so easy for us to do, right? Like, we pull back and like, Wait, like should we be doing this? Is this where we should put our efforts? Should we be mixing up with these people? Like, what would God do in this situation? And Jesus is giving us the roadmap to what God would do in this situation because he is God. Like, he's showing you, this is what I would do, right? So Jesus hears the criticism and the questions of the Pharisees and his response it's, it's, is as brilliant as it is simple. Look at verse 17. And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician. But those who are sick, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Right, so so trick question for you guys. And I'm just, I'm telling you from the the get-go, like it's almost impossible for you to get this wrong. It's a trick question. Who are the sick in this story? Like everyone, right? The crowds, Levi, the disciples, the Pharisees, the sinners the tax collectors, the religiously upright and moral religious leaders tasked with the spiritual purity and integrity of the nation were just as much in need of spiritual healing and restoration as tax collectors and sinners were. Jesus exposes their own spiritual sickness. See, I think we get this a little wrong sometimes. Like, like we have this like emotional response where we're like, man, All we should be spending time with are broken people, are hurt people, are people that like are kind of on the outside of this thing, which is true. And then we typecast the Pharisees as like the the villains in the story. And we miss that Jesus is saying, no, no, everybody's sick here. Some people are irreligious and some people are like over-religious, but they're all sick and they all need the great physician to come and heal them. And the way that he heals them is not with religion or not with irreligion, but with the gospel and the good news of who he is. So Jesus exposes to the morally upright religious leaders that they're just as much in need of salvation as the sinners and the tax collectors, right? So this should disrupt our own sense of self-righteousness, right? If we think that we merit God's favor because of the family that we were born to or the country that we were born in or the church that we attend or how often we attend or, or how and where we serve in the church or if we like do missional community, like whatever, right? 
because you must see yourself as lost before you can be saved. You must know that you are spiritually sick before you can be spiritually healed. You must know that you are spiritually dead in sin before you can be made spiritually alive in Christ. That's why Jesus eats with sinners, but it's also why he confronts the religiosity of the Pharisees. I think it's important to make a distinction here for us. First of all, if you didn't know this, none of you are Jesus, okay? Some of you might walk around like, I'm pretty close to it, right? But, but you're not, right? And, and we need to see this. Jesus isn't just partying with sinners here, right? Like, I think we get it a little confused, especially like, like kind of being a part of like this whole like missional movement as a church. I think we get it a little, like we do the party thing really well, right? But I think all too often we actually miss the mission, right? Like Jesus's goal in reaching out to the sick and attending this, right, is to bring about healing and transformation in the lives of spiritually dead people, not just to gather them for a barbecue and a game of can jam, right? So he's going to proclaim the good news. Like I think it's so easy for us to just go like, we're super missional because we throw block parties, right? But I would just go back to Haddon's question. Do you love God? Do you love your neighbors, right? Do you mind if I ask them? Do they know it? Like, are you loving them in a way that is more pronounced, more important than just partying with them? Like, Jesus is living out his mission by calling sinners to repentance and faith in him. And he'll show up just about anywhere to accomplish his mission. So, so why is everyone else fasting then? And this is this, this next question, but not Jesus and his disciples. And this is where feels like the story takes a shift, right? We've got this little calling of Levi or Matthew and the story of him eating dinners, but then dinner with some sinners. But, but what does then this next little piece like fasting have to do with any of this, right? So let's try to make some sense of this here. So it says, now, now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting and people came and said to him, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples don't fast, right? So there's some confusion here on the part of the people as they witness this party going on, right? And they, they raise a question about fasting, right? You see, fasting held a very unique and distinct position in Israel's historical and cultural and religious landscape, right? So on, on one hand, the law only required fasting once a year, and that was in and around in the period leaning up to the Day of Atonement or Yom Kippur, right? So uh, one day a year, priests, the priests would go into the Holy of Holies and offer up this one sacrifice, and that would atone for or cover all of the sins that happened in that past year, right? And so people would fast as a sign of repentance, right? However, in, in, in Israel's history, the rhythm of fasting would find its way into other cultural experiences and practices. For example, like fasting had become associated with mourning and lamenting. So if you're mourning, if you're lamenting, often you would fast. It was also an outward sign of inward repentance. So John, John the baptizer. John fasted because he practiced asceticism, right? So kind of a form of self-denial. So his disciples fasted with him, and they would fast in anticipation of the arrival of God's Messiah. 
The Pharisees, however, they made it like a job to fast. They would, they would, they would at least fast twice a week, which is just kind of their own thing. They would observe all the ritual fasts prescribed in the Old Testament. Um, it be, because, and, and there's a different reason. Like John and his disciples are fasting in order to like repent and lament and mourn and then groan for God to send his Messiah. And then the Pharisees would fast again as this kind of sign of like purity, but, but they sought to earn God's rescue from Roman oppression through, through national purity and obedience, right? So, so they would wear their fasting like a badge of honor because they're calling other people to fast because the more people that fast, the more pure we are, and then God will send his Messiah to kick Rome out, right? So when they see Jesus and his disciples like living it up at this party, eating and drinking and celebrating, it raises some red flags for them. But they're basically saying, if you're so spiritual, why do you not make your followers live up to our high religious standards? Does Jesus not care about God's deliverance? Is basically what they're asking. So look at Jesus's response. And Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast, right? So he basically is telling them, Right now, it's not the time to fast. And he uses this metaphor of a wedding, which is all throughout Scripture, right? And weddings in Israel, unlike our culture, they, they didn't last like 30 minutes, right? 35, I guess, if you're going to do unity sand and like release the doves or whatever. But, but, a, but a wedding feast, it would last for like a week long. I mean, it was a party, right? It was a time for eating and drinking and I've never said this word before, but merriment, it was great, right? And if you're gonna serve the best food and drink, like think about, like we do a little bit of this, right? Like as you're approaching the holiday season, most of us might engage in somewhat of a small little fast before that, so that when we get to the holiday season, we can gorge ourselves and all the good food that's gonna come our way, right? If, you're, if you work in an office, you're going to get all of it there. You're going to go to the parties. And so, so because when you're at a party, nobody fasts, right? Because there's too much good food and too, it's just like super practical. There's too much food, too much to drink. So no one wanted to fast during a wedding. It was a time to throw down. It was a time to party. And so there's this little hidden gem in here that Jesus is doing, right? And we need to connect this. The, the Old Testament, like if you read through the entirety of the Old Testament, this metaphor of wedding is all, the, all through it. But the Old Testament never refers to God's Messiah as the bridegroom, right? The bridegroom in the Old Testament is God, it's always God, and then the bride is Israel. So the father is the, is, is the bridegroom, and the bride is Israel. But in the New Testament, there's, there's a subtle thing that Jesus does, which he says, I'm the bridegroom. Like the bridegroom is the son of God, and the bride is his church, Right? So, so given the Old Testament context of the metaphor, it's clear that Jesus in this, because like we can read past this real quick and not see how important this is. Jesus was in fact claiming even more than Messiahship, right? When he referred to himself as the bridegroom, he's claiming in this instance that he himself is God, right? I'm God in the flesh. I'm God here and now come to save my people. And, and, and then he tells them like, why they should fast. Verse 20, the day will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast on that day, right? So, so he gives them this ominous warning 
that, that he would not always be with them. And so Jesus is pointing to his eventual arrest, crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension. He's warning his disciples that he won't always be with them, for now he is. Now it's time to eat and drink and party and celebrate. He's saying, I'm here now, and just like this wedding feast, it's a reason to celebrate. The Messiah is with you. God is with you. It's a time to party, not mourn. There will be a time for fasting, and that's when the bridegroom is taken away, right? And that's weird, because have you ever been to a wedding where the, the, the groom is like swiftly ushered away and out, right? Like I've done a couple where I'm like, okay, I think this dude's about to bolt, right? We need to like hold him down. Like what's going on here? But like nobody ever just goes like, let's get the bride, the, the, the groom out of here, right? And so there's this unique thing that Jesus, he's like, I'm giving you this warning that I'm going to be taken away, which, which doesn't make sense in the wedding metaphor. So he's pointing to his eventual ascension and then he's going to depart and not be with his disciples. And remember, he's teaching them. He's showing them. He's making them to become fisher of men, right? So he's saying, celebrate now. Celebrate now because the kingdom of God has arrived. It's before you. It's with you. It's eating and drinking with you with a bunch of tax collectors and sinners in the person of Jesus. The kingdom of God is breaking in and it's reversing the effects of sin and the fall. It's this already and not yet reality. Because we know that the final victory is still yet to come. In order to defeat sin and death, the bridegroom first must become their victim. Jesus will be snatched away to suffer alone on a cross to atone for our sins, to die the death we should have died, to pay the price for sin that we should have paid. He dies in our place. He bears the wrath that we so rightly deserve, and he takes the judgment that's coming for us. We need to see this. God killed his son so he would not have to kill us. He gives us life. So yes, yes, there's an appropriate time to fast and to mourn. It's when we consider the infinite price that was paid for our sin by our Savior. But we also celebrate. We celebrate the new life that Jesus gives, right? So really, here's the deal. The appropriate question really isn't why Jesus and his disciples are not fasting. That's not really the appropriate question. The, the, the real question is, why didn't the Pharisees feast and celebrate the presence of the Messiah? Why were they not in there? Why were they not following the Messiah that God had sent to them, right? And so then Jesus wraps this all up with like these two like compact and really like concise pieces and, 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 he, and he tells it in such a unique way, right? So he says, no one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth and garment. If he does, that patch tears away the new and the old from it, right? And then he goes on to tell this story about new wine into wine. So here's what he's doing. He's saying like, listen, it's just like a real practical thing. And some of it, it gets a little lost in us culturally because most often probably we're not patching old garments and we're not pouring wine into skins, right? We're like, wait, box? It doesn't come in a box? I don't know. I don't know what that means, right? So he's doing this. He's saying, here's the deal. It's just real practical. Like nobody would ever take a garment, right? And if it had a hole in it, you wouldn't take a new piece of cloth that had not been washed 
dried and shrunk, and you would not sew it to that old garment, right? And nor would you take new wine and put it into an old wineskin. Wineskin would probably most commonly be used from the skin of a goat, which had this kind of natural elasticity to it. It would grow and move, um, had some durability to it. But when you put new wine into that old wineskin, as it fermented, it would expand um, and it would burst it. So both the old wineskin and the new wine would be lost. So you take new wine, you put it into a new wineskin. Here's what Jesus is doing. Jesus is saying, like, listen, here's the deal. God has shown up in the person of Jesus because God is doing a completely new thing here, right? God is doing a new thing. Somebody should write a song about that, right? God is doing, I can hear the melody clearly in my brain. God is doing a new thing. Anybody want to get on that? Go for it. Jesus' incarnation means this. It means everything is new, right? And it doesn't mean that the old was bad. It just means it's no longer usable, right? It's been replaced by something far better. And when the real thing arrives, we don't worship the shadow or the former thing. The author of Hebrews says this, for since the law was or has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never by the same sacrifice that are continually offered every year make perfect those who draw near. And so Jesus is saying that old system, that old law, it was put into place to reveal our desperate need for salvation that we can never achieve or earn on our own. And Jesus, in the person of Jesus, God is doing something new. He's establishing a new covenant of grace and it's to all people, and it makes all things new. It's a remarkable truth that we need to, to understand, because really what Jesus is saying is, listen, what I'm doing in your life is something new. And, and if you stay back with the old, right, like new life will never take root in you. New life will never come. New transformation so, so in, in, in a way, he's calling out the Pharisees saying like, hey, listen, like God instituted this old and former way of the law, but recognize the Messiah is before you and God's simply doing something new in him. And in order to have new life, you have to get on board with what Jesus is doing. So we're gonna take a few moments here this morning to respond to this truth. And we're gonna do that here in a few ways at Hub City. I'm gonna ask you guys to, to sing. Um, and, and singing for us is so much more um, than just making noise or looking at some words up here. It's, it's really tuning our hearts and aligning our hearts with, and really through that, telling each other and telling God that he is what is worth most to us. He is worthy of our worship. We're going to take some time and you can slow down and we would ask that you would just spend some time praying. Um, we'd ask that you would give this morning, and then finally we get to go to the table and receive. Now, here's the thing. Like, we understand that, like, we kind of hit this new level of extreme for this week, and, and, and one of the things that was kind of in that was, like, like, don't do food if at all possible, but if it's necessary to what you do. And that kind of struck me as, like, such an interesting thing. Like, is going to the table a necessary thing? Um, I think it is. I think we go to the table in grace, receive grace, and proclaim the truth 
of the grace that Jesus so freely gives, and we see it here in the story. Now, we're not going to make you do this today. Like, we understand that some of you might go like, hey, it's not safe today, but, but if you feel safe, we've prepared it in a safe way. And I'm just, I don't normally all say this, but we, we know where we're at right now. We have prepared this safely, um, and so we would invite you, if you feel comfortable, to go to the table. And the reason that I say it's about grace is because I'm not going to invite you to go and take communion, because it's not something that you have to wrestle away from Jesus, right? The bread and the cup that symbolizes his body and his blood was grace. It's not something that we demanded of him. It's something that he freely gave to his people, and he goes to a cross and offers up his body and offers up his blood so that he can make us new. So we invite you to worship. We invite you to receive we invite you to proclaim the goodness of our God. Let me pray.